Hey, thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. If you like this episode, please follow us and tell one of your colleagues about the interview you're about to hear or have heard in the past. We hope you enjoy our conversations and that you'll listen to others in our library. If you have any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions, please reach out. We'll do our best to incorporate them. Thanks again. Hi, this is your host, Vladimir Bostanets, and today's podcast conversation takes us into Southern California, where we meet up with Bircher Development's Brandy Bircher, who is the CEO of the development company, and his daughter, Brooke Bircher Gustafson, a managing director at the firm and the next generation of the family expecting to take over the leadership at the company. The family's history in many ways is tied to the history of the industrial market across Inland Empire. But the company continues to evolve, just as the industry does, too. And in today's interview, we'll explore ways in which the two are changing and what it means for the industrial real estate in Southern California in the foreseeable future. Welcome to the podcast. Brandy, Brooke, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for having us. How are you guys doing? Where do we find you today? We're in uh, Newport Beach, California, and uh, we've been officed here for about gosh, five years now, but... Um, been in business for about 80, 80 plus years. Excellent. All right. And and I bet the last two were probably nothing like the first 78, I imagine, with uh, <laughs> all the craziness going on. Yeah, it's been quite a change, but um, you know, adapting has been kind of the virtue of, of the surviving. So yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Brandy's at least been through, you know, a couple of recessions and, and I've I kind of uh, had a chance to go through the global financial crisis. So I think it's, you know, nothing... I'll say new, but as Brandy said, innovation is kind of key to survival. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Well, um, as uh, as a start of our conversation, I would love for you to give us a little bit of an overview of you know you guys personally, but also your firm. You know, tell us a little bit about sort of you know how how you got into this business. Maybe is the first question um, as a as a family business. Did you have an option? Did you not have an option? And then we can also talk a little bit about, you know, you know, the firm, um, you know, in general and kind of what, what the company does, you know, where, where your sphere of activity is, um, if you will. Yeah, great. Well, I'll take a step back into time. So um, it was my great-grandfather, uh, Justice Bircher, that was a carpenter and a home builder and a commercial building developer um, in uh, Philadelphia, moved to California in 1911 and came to Santa Ana here in Orange County and was a developer contractor on everything from residential single family to uh, warehouses uh, for the citrus industry. And that was a big part of the um, economic driver at the time at turn of the century. And then his son, Fayette Bircher, uh, who we brought from Philadelphia, uh, followed him in the footsteps as an etymologist out of the Oregon State uh, University, came back to Southern California with a uh, expertise in insects and uh, knew all the grove owners in the region. And uh, as the war ended um, in uh, the mid 40s, the Southern California market started to bloom as the men and women returned to, to home and also looked to places to live and establish family. And Southern California was a really big benefactor of that, that event. And so um, the orange groves and Walnut Groves ended up being prime development locations, and we developed um, through what my granddad uh, had done in the 40s and 50s. Um, my father, Ron Bircher, and his brother, Art Bircher, who was younger, uh, my dad uh, joined the firm in 1952. Um, they were developing uh, large ranches uh, into everything from country clubs, residential, but um, it was the beginning of the tilt concrete uh, technology. And we were one of the members of the Southern California community that helped pioneer that technology along. Um, and so we became a contractor in the 50s. And um, as my uncle uh, Art joined the firm in early 60s after um, uh, you know, graduated from Claremont, uh, he and my dad um, grew the company and in 1969, um, we had an opportunity as a firm uh, to uh, be interviewed with Southern Pacific Railroad, the country's largest railroad at the time, um, to become sure. an in-house development firm. And so we were selected. And for a decade, we had a contract to 
developed nationwide and opened offices in 16 states developing uh, on their 2.8 million acres. Um, and it was a, a quite a ride. It grew our company significantly. And that's when I joined the firm in the middle of that contract, 1976, when I had graduated from Claremont and um, joined the firm and titling land. So I'll take a breath there. Um, Brooke may want to chat a little bit about what happened after uh, Southern Pacific. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was an opportunity to bring in a partner uh, out of Japan, Mitsui, who uh, came in and uh, was a, a venture partner with Bercher to build you know, commercial properties here in Southern California and the West Coast. Um, that uh, then transitioned to an opportunity for Bercher to also do some development down in Mexico. Uh, Brandy spent some time down there being able to build headquarters for GE, um, Allergan, uh, Bechtel Hughes, uh, so some pretty big names down there. And uh, that was in the 90s. Yeah, yep. um, we've got, uh, uh, since then, I, I'll say I, I joined the company in 2007 when I graduated from the University of Southern California, my undergraduate there. And um, we, in 2012, uh, formed a partnership with Goodman Group out of Australia, who was one of the largest uh, uh, REITs in industrial um, outside of the U.S. next to Prologis. Uh, we were their U.S. Uh, platform here that we helped them grow their platform organically, put about $3 billion of equity to work and about 15 million square feet of industrial project across the, the nation, really kind of focused on uh, East Coast and West Coast. Um, but we've, uh, in, in 2017, uh, sold our interest in that company and decided to start kind of Bercher, we'll call it 5.0 up again, where, where Brandy, uh, fourth generation and myself, fifth generation had an opportunity to uh, both be in ownership positions and work together and really cool way and uh, work side by side, father, daughter, which is great. And, and interesting in, in the history of, you know, five generations, I'm now the, I'll say first woman ownership uh, position, but uh, an opportunity to to really work alongside my dad in this capacity has been been awesome. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And um, as an enterprise, is your focus now just in Southern California? You've mentioned about you know all of these other things that you've done, sort of nationwide and you know elsewhere. But 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 the sort of you know 2017 and onward, um, where where is the focus for the for the company? Yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll make a comment about the transition. So. Um, as we came off of the national platform, um, it became obvious to this generation of number four and five that we needed to focus on um, something that was um, intently going to be our future, at least for the medium to long run. And being that we had developed everything from uh, you know, retail, specialty retail like design centers or produce marts, um, multifamily, um, it, you know, obviously R&D, uh, mid-rise office, all these different product types, um, we couldn't be a, uh, a master of all. So we looked at the future of the American real estate market and came up with who we didn't want to be, who we were not. And once we discovered and embraced who we weren't, it became really easy to be who we became and who we wanted to be. And that was warehouse distribution. So we went back to our roots, which was mainly the railroad days of developing warehouse and distribution. And we started to um, pick that up. But we did one more thing, which was we've learned the lesson of um, the pros and cons of being in markets that have no barrier to entry. And you take the five largest markets in America, Southern California, Dallas, Chicago, Atlanta, and the greater you know, New Jersey central PA markets, and only two of those enjoy, if you will, and that's with quotes, you know, enjoy uh, barriers to entry. And there's reasons there are barriers. Uh, some of them aren't good, but they do create scarcity and prevent um, overbuilding from driving uh, a good part of the market um, most of the time. And so uh, we decided to focus really on the highest barrier markets with the highest absorption. And there were only two. Yeah, and I'd, I'd say, you know, our focus is interesting. I mean, it really even more so went back to, I'll say, the early 2000s and shifting to industrial, which is interesting because, you know, in the last, I'll say, five to seven years, industrial has become much more the darling investment, um, you know, asset 
a type or product type. And, um, you know, we, we were, well, say, well ahead of the trend and, and really to our core since, you know, the 70s with the railroad, understanding kind of the nuances and, and uh, um, drivers and, and why it, it is such an attractive and we think long term uh, kind of best in class opportunity for investment. In terms of the product type, is there a certain, um, you know, size of the product that you guys focus on? Um certain type of customer and not necessarily, you know, I'm not asking you to name specific, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, companies, but, but, you know, types of like, you know, you said earlier on in the evolution of your organization, you were focused on the citrus growers, right? So um, is, is there a sort of a segment of the industry that, that you feel you're better suited to cover? Yeah. So we build all our projects are speculative. So don't have a tenant I'll say in mind, we've done plenty of built to suits in the past. Um, so, so, you know, relationships with Kroger and, um, gosh, Northgate Gonzalez Markets here in Southern California. Uh, so significant build suits, but primarily speculative. So we'll say, you know, focused on big box, about 250,000 square feet and above. And uh, really that the primary uh, tenants in the market here for Southern California, we're seeing, you know, e-com, thir uh, third-party logistics centers, um, you know, food and beverage companies and um, just, you know, general warehousing distribution. In terms of um, sort of your focus on, you know, speculative development, let me kind of uh, shift gears here, you know, a bit and talk about sort of what your perspective of the, you know, market is. I mean, last few years have been really tremendous for the industrial sector uh, in, in, you know, many ways, uh, really not just in Southern California, but, uh, you know, throughout the country, I would, I would argue. Um, where where do you see the market sort of in 2023? Here we are talking in you know Q1 of 2023. Do you still feel comfortable about your you know speculative you know strategies? That's something that you guys will you know continue to you know pursue. Um, and just in general, you know, how do you see the market sort of being being driven today? Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot there that we could probably spend a couple hours on uh, talking about a variety of topics. But to kind of silo it, um, you know, we've we see a, a tremendous amount of opportunity, especially in the speculative development uh, here in Southern California. As Brady stated, really, our our core is focused on um, highest barrier to entry, highest absorbing markets, and that's certainly Southern California. Um, you know, the, the trends in this last year, the, the pandemic, uh, rising interest rates, inflation, um, gen general tenant demand, and then just overall drivers that were changing, you know, already pre-pandemic, we'll say, you know, e-commerce with the, the, the challenges in retail and versus, you know, purchasing online. A lot of that has provided a significant amount of opportunity for our sector in particular, um, I think by way of, and we can kind of, again, segment it into, you know, the, the challenges we're facing today with entitlements, but the opportunities that have come out of that challenges and financing where the, you know, the debt markets or capital markets have changed quite a bit because of rising interest rates, but the opportunities because of that. Um, and then also really focused on, again, just uh, cost inflation and um, the, the, the limited supply uh, and kind of how that's changing or adjusting the market by way of, you know, rent growth, uh, land, um, kind of bid-ask spreads and, and all of that. So I think we could kind of maybe dive into certain topics if that would be easier to, to go into it kind of one-on-one -on -one there. Yeah, I would probably add to that that, um, you know, that we see in 23, you know, just fewer starts, obviously. Um, that would be probably good news in a odd way for those developers that have uh, the availability of debt, being that the debt has been restricted and curtailed, um, there's a high demand right. for it, and there's a lot less of it. So anybody that can get a start is going to do very well. Um, of course, uh, occupiers are going to be um, uh, looking at that phenomena because with fewer availabilities in the future, um, as the product that started nine months ago uh, completes and enters the occupancy stage, then we're going to see the companies with business plans three to five years out that are uh, visionary for growth in Southern California are going to take space now. Um, there's going to be a kind of pig in the python problem only with the vacancy issue. Um, uh, they're going to be 
very, very low vacancies as the supply continues to go down, fewer starts and demand may slow a bit, but we think the supply will fall faster than the demand will slow. Therefore, still having a gap in the supply demand equation, still giving strength to rents. So we see that being a reality. Uh, you know, sands some sort of major black swan, more of an international cause than any other. I think the feds are going to do a good job with their objectives, and um, 23 will will have to you know grin and bear it. But um, it, it it should not uh, you know tear the market apart here at all. I think demand's going to be the thing to watch. Interesting. Are you noticing any sort of parts, any submarkets uh, throughout Southern California that um, uh, that because of these dynamics are now you know experiencing kind of an evolution? So maybe something that was like an infill market in the past is now becoming kind of a bigger sort of player in the in the ecosystem. Um, and and if so, where where are you seeing uh, that uh, happening? Yeah, I think we're seeing uh, submarkets that were maybe considered secondary within, say, the Inland Empire, for example. If, if the, the Inland Empire West, you know, maybe core to Ontario Airport or closer to the ports of LA Long Beach, that was kind of the centroid. We're seeing now because of um, just the, the demand in the submarket uh, sub in particular, but also just limited availability of land and the need to manufacture it a lot. Out of the um, growth is a northeast uh, to you know Hispa Valley Temecula. where Temecula yeah no submarkets and being I'll say an institutionalized uh, component and, and uh, uh, submarket within the Inland Empire. The, the thing is going to be very uh, interesting, and I think um, the development and lending community need to watch this very carefully as they go into these new markets, um, and I'll call them the high desert for a lack of a definition, both in the north. Uh, uh, East LA market, and then down into the Southeast Southern California markets. It's about labor. These warehouses are, are require labor, and these are large uh, tracts of land being developed for warehouse. And so you look at, as an example, the Morena Valley um, with the you know tens of millions of feet that have been developed in just the last three to five years. There is a growing uh, scarcity of qualified labor. And we know some tenants won't go to those submarkets uh, because they're now looking for um, less competition for labor and going to markets with a lot of new housing starts. So one of our projects that uh, we've got going is um, actually a, we have 230 acres in an area east of, uh, of Redlands and and west of Beaumont Banning and, and on the 10 freeway. Uh, off the 10 freeway and you know out in the Ukaipa Mesa area. And those those submarkets have 35,000 new home starts that are zoned, okay, that will be built and, and they're entitled. So we see a great deal of home building capability and labor base there. Um, or even just existing labor that was driving, you know, from the east to the west, I mean, that they would probably prefer a job, you know, more local to home. And just, you know, what, what folks are environmental justice groups and, and, you know, we study as part of CEQA the impact of time on the road or, you know, the, the greenhouse gas, you know, all of that. It just it helps promote, I'll say, a more localized approach that also helps the environment. Right. So right. it's just it's creating local jobs and servicing the need and, and where the tenants have that demand for uh, occupancy. Yeah. And you mentioned CEQA, which is a which is a big uh, sort of, you know, part of the development process in, you know, California. Um, uh, I'm sure like any other, uh, you know, developer, you guys are also faced with, uh, you know, challenges regarding, um that and sort of, you know, maybe a, maybe a certain pushback in terms of where things are being built and how they're being built. Um, how big of an impact is that on, on the industry today? Well, so let me just give a historic view and then I'll let Brooke kind of get you up to speed here. But I, I think that, you know, in my 46 years in the business, um, that I remember in 76, when I first joined the company, my first job description was to entitle uh, 3,200 acres in the area of Laguna Niguel around a large building called the Ziggurat. It was a government property, 
but it was actually um, developed by North American Rockwell for the space industry coming out of El Segundo and the LAX area. And we entitled the land, and I thought that was an impossible task. I couldn't believe the hurdles and the drama and the codes and the issues and the, and the naysayers and the NIMBYs. That was 76. And every year since, it's kind of like the example of cooking the frog, you know, a, little, a degree at a time. Um, 46 years later, the water's 46 degrees warmer, and it is profoundly different than the industry I began in. And I suspect that the next 46 are going to have another profound impact upon development. Now, look, it, it all isn't good. Um, I will, and, and some of it but has I, been very yeah, good. Yeah, but I think it leaves room for opportunity. And and maybe you could explain a little bit about that project in Laguna Niguel, what that created. I mean, it was the Jimmy Carter days and energy yeah. issues, but it also driven by, you know, the entitlement component of it that maybe you could talk about what resulted in that because it's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, that, that's an interesting yeah. period. So, um, so we, we had a project that was out of the normal, I'll call it conventional location for warehouse and business park in Laguna Niguel. It was really a, a tertiary submarket in Southern California. And um, uh, Jimmy Carter was president. You recall um, for the maybe a little older members on the listening here to this podcast will know that uh, that was the year when um, 78, 79, 80, when the energy department was created and the first energy czar Schlesinger uh, became the secretary and basically changed a lot of the federal laws. You know, during the holidays, we couldn't hang holiday lights, Christmas lights for a couple of years. We you know, had an energy crisis. And so we focused on alternative concepts and focused on solar, which had not really been done at all in our space. And so we were the, according to the LA Times, um, the first business part uh, to incorporate active and passive solar systems in America. And ever since 7980, we have been watching the solar sector grow and go through its pains. Um, so we've been trying to be at the front end of technology and innovation and trying to bring our tenants a lower cost of, of energy and other types of benefits of building design. But this is not a new phenomenon. This was back before sustainability was a word. But I will say one thing, in Southern California, I went to college out in the Inland Empire and the air quality in the uh, early 70s was so bad that we couldn't have um, athletic practices uh, after 9 a.m. We had to do them you know, before the sun came up and do them well after the sun went down because of the quality of air. Uh, nowadays, 40 years later, the air quality in Southern California, we haven't had a, a red you know, smog day or whatever they used to call them, uh, smog alerts. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, they're, they're almost unheard of. So something's happened, even though the basin has tripled in size, we have seen to increase air quality substantially. So we, we have to take it a little bit into perspective. We're all doing the right thing. And these environmentalists are doing the right thing with the messaging. But we have to be careful with the fringe messages and the, and the fringe overreacting. Let's celebrate the accomplishments of the past and stay on a steady course of enhancing the environment without radical reactions that cause unintended consequences to our consumers with high costs of occupancy and with codes that are draconian and have a lot of unintended consequences. Yeah. Yeah. For example, I mean, a lot of what we see, you know, if it's driven primarily by maybe a um, environmental or planning um, a driven perspective of how the, the building should be built in our sector, that, that's not the right approach because it doesn't meet the true demand needs of the customer and occupier. So you're building, you're almost building for guaranteed vacancy. You're not building to have, uh, you know, the true opportunity for growth and expansion and, you know, ta tax generation for cities and what they benefit by having a long-term credit tenant occupier there. If you build maybe smaller product that it isn't just what's meant for, say, for example, in the Inland Empire, um, you know, bigger boxes are, what the demand is um, by way of, you know, customer needs. So just kind of balancing that again, to bring what Brandy said, we've made a lot of headway uh, in, in the many years, 40 plus years in the Southern California basin. But obviously, you know, a lot of what we do is, is focused on market driven needs 
uh, by way of our customers and meeting that demand. Um, so it's really kind of just trying to work through marrying up. We, we call it legislation and innovation, and the two have to work together. And a lot of, especially in California, legislative, legislation drives innovation in our sector in particular, because it has to be, I'll say, unfortunately, a bit reactionary, but Berkshire really tries to stay ahead of it too, by being proactive by way of you know, building design and um, and, and ESG, you know, integrating all of that as part of our, our yeah. projects and developments. Yeah, there, there's a trend, in, yeah. Yeah, just, just to put an exclamation mark on it, there's a trend in the planning world uh, at city halls across the Southwest that for some reason have this notion that smaller buildings have lesser environmental impact. Um, our, our, our traffic modeling and traffic consultants are telling us these smaller buildings have a lot higher uh, ADTs, average daily trips, than do the larger warehouses. The credit of the smaller tenant has a whole different profile for a community with shorter term leases, more turnover, more vacancy, less commitment to the Chamber of Commerces, uh, more transient job creation versus the bigger long term lease credit tenants that anchor a community. And for some, in the community. yeah, all, yeah, all have, have, have national programs and, and, and foundations and things like that. I'm not, look, at, I'm all for the small guy and the, and the small business, but let's meet the demand. Let's don't, let's don't build buildings to a false demand. And right now we have planners wagging a dog without market research supporting that notion at all. And they'd be a lot better off with larger buildings if they would let the science speak a little bit to the point. How are we going to solve it? Everybody whines and talks about where uh, we've been and doggone it, this is what I'm facing. But let's take a moment and go to our mountaintop and say, okay, with all that noise and with all of the relationships we have in the environmental community and with all the science and the consultants, so what are we going to do? And, and I think there's an opportunity to change the music, change the imaging, and um, work better. Listen to what the communities and the people in them are telling us as developers. There's no doubt that trucks are tough to drive behind when you follow a truck on a, on a road. Um, uh, warehouses um, around them have a lot of vans and trucks you know, using your local streets. and um, and, and they, they're big buildings, but they can also be architecturally attractive and, you know, house a lot of jobs. But where I'm going with this is, so what does the building, what does the tenant contribute to the community? And when we start to look at that, Bircher has, I think, attempted to go to its mountaintop and come up with some ideas that might help us as a company, but hopefully the industry as well, where we have started to partner with some research and um, collaborating with the NAIOP chapter of Southern California and, uh, and also some degree of the Inland Empire chapter, um, an idea that may change the image of a warehouse when we go into City Hall uh, from a skunk, because a lot of people just don't want us in the room. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to have the political exposure to have to vote on another warehouse. But change the image from that to one of maybe I don't know, lack of a better analogy, but maybe the goose that lays the golden egg on a perpetual basis. I mean, what if? So how do we do that? Well, we get entitlements with, with conditions of approval that require us to do X and Y in a community, widen this street, fix that storm drain, add that signal, uh, you know, uh, et cetera. Um, but we're starting to see that maybe these buildings need to be longer term contributors. So what Brooke and I've come up with is a, a conversation with, with the citizens once the building is up and occupied. And how we're gonna be doing this is we're actually putting a deed restriction on the land of a one cent a square foot a month fee that the tenant will be paying the landlord into a fund the landlord will manage on behalf of the tenant and the owner of the building that every, at the end of every year, the landlord will, will reach out to the community that the building's in and ask those citizens, what are the one or two most important issues to you, not your politicians, but to you? What bothers you guys? 
It could be graffiti. It could be uh, just residential traffic and getting kids to the school ground. It may, be, it may be homelessness or a number of items, right? It could be that your trucks are in our streets and we don't want them in our neighborhoods. We need more code enforcement, okay? So we're gonna be using that, those dollars every year in perpetuity to keep giving back to that community for those causes. And then we're going to publish an ad in the local newspaper and, and, and uh, e-platforms that say that tenant X and building owner Y, in this case, Bircher or our, and our partner, have given X dollars this year towards this and this. And you're a warehouse occupier and your warehouse developer are proud to be part of your community. You know, and if NIOP would have their bug, you know, their logo at the bottom of that ad, that we think that's enhancing the image of our industry. So we're, we're looking at it as an opportunity to change the narrative to a long-term giver. And that one cent a square foot is nothing on the triple nets and has no impact to the value of our building on a cap rate uh, to, because it's triple net. And, and therefore, we're, we're, at, we're asking our tenant and we will manage it to give back because after all, it's their trucks, it's their traffic. It's for their reason that we built the building to begin with. The building doesn't create the problem with the community. The tenant's occupancy creates the problem with the community. And we're trying to change the image of our, of our warehousers and, uh, and start to give back. So that's what we're coming up with. And I think NIOP is receiving that message well. And now we're starting to talk to our fellow developers about and investors about adding this to their, their uh, portfolios, this, this one cent a square foot a month contribution. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. And in terms of the product itself, how is that evolving? Um, I imagine what was built, you know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know, looked very different or looks very different to, you know, maybe some of the new projects, um, you know, today we're hearing of, you know, two story warehouses and things like, 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 like that. And I understand that's maybe um, a product better suited for an urban environment, but I'm, but I am curious, you know, how, um, that's evolving also in terms of uh, just the you know physical aspect of the of the of the of the building. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Again, I think a lot of it um, as a result of you know, I'll just say in the the near term what has occurred by way of just the pandemic that's driven kind of a whole new type of demand that say t- two three years ago wasn't really on the radar and that was called safety stock now um, as a result of what we all saw happen on. You know the the um, in grocery stores and drug stores. You know no toilet paper, no hair gel, no you know products that we thought we were just in in such a just in time delivery method. And the supply chain was so efficient that you know you wouldn't put you wouldn't stock the product unless they knew they needed it. You know that night or that day um, that the order was made. But uh, as a result of the pandemic, they saw there's a huge gap there where uh, we do need to have the safety stock. So that. At the time, uh, I think conversations were being had between kind of the economists and, and industrial experts uh, that about a, a billion more square feet of product was required uh, to nationally to service that safety stock alone. So that was just kind of sat outside of just our traditional demand for just growth and consumer, you know, consumer growth and e-commerce growth and all of these these drivers that businesses were were kind of growing into already, anyways. Um, I think on, uh, we've kind of talked about just legislation, but I think a lot of what we're seeing by way of, you know, port-driven dynamics, new, you know, regulations that are being imposed there, containers, you know, not, not able to sit on the port for a certain amount of time that need to be, uh, you know, that, unless they'll be taxed. Uh, so the customer now needing to hold that product on site has driven a new site design in the last, call it, you know, 10 to 15 years where larger truck courts are required, higher cube space in the building. So building the buildings taller for more, you know, racking and storage um, so and, and better circulation uh, so that, again, trailer or containers can be kept on site um, and as opposed to be taxed mm-hmm. at the port. So just those dynamics have really driven, I'll see a change in site design. Um, and again, also sure. just a, a change in the building size and why we're kind of hear us talking about big box demand, call it 250,000 square feet and up, 
uh, just th those dynamics of really driving um, the need for more space uh, as opposed to, you know, maybe just one-off smaller buildings peppered throughout the, um, the basin, uh, which is what was more traditionally seen in this kind of just-in-time delivery uh, method. Yeah. And, and one more thing about design before we move on um, is the uh, power issue. And of course, more power to the sites. Yes. And every, yep. anybody yeah. in Southern California knows uh, the electric companies, and I won't call them out, but uh, you know, you just can't get the equipment, uh, you know, early enough. There's a there's a real backlog of that, and it's driven by a number of things. But they're doing the best they can. But here's where the big disconnect is. You know, we've got we hear about rolling brownouts. We talk about uh, state of California demanding electric vehicles only sales after was it 3035, and we've got issues of just trying to deal with current demand for electricity versus forcing everybody to, during the day and night, charge their cars. And so technologies are still uh, not there. You know, if, if you supercharge your, your Tesla battery, I'm not going to call them out, but I, I understand that if you, if you want to do the super fast charge while you're on the road, uh, it really degrades your battery uh, life. Um, so maybe a car is good for two or 300 supercharges. Well, if you want a trickle charge, that takes hours. Well, you don't have time like that when you're on the road. So, so this whole thing needs to be thought out, right? Well, think of all the roofs we've got and all the solar that could be built. And with continued um, incentives, I think we can continue with that. But here's the big disconnect. Our tenants may or may not need the electrical generated electricity generated from the roof. Right now, I'm going to throw completely irrelevant numbers out, but let's just pretend that it, it we, we could you know generate you know eight, an equivalent cost of eight cents of you know uh, for electrical service into the building. When if if we can't use it in the building, we have to sell it back to the grid. They'll only buy it back at a penny. Well. Um, why would you spend the millions of dollars speculatively on a tenant that doesn't need the electricity if you can't sell it to the grid for an eighth or a tenth of the real price when right across sure, the right. street from our building will be a user or a, or a residential community that's having brownout problems, okay, with their you know, laundry needs and air conditioning and everything else they're doing with an aging population staying home, I mind you, Um and they can't get the electricity when we'd be more than happy to sell it to them at six cents, you know, less than the eight cents it costs. I mean, whatever it takes, we have a disconnect between the electric company and the generation on these roofs. So that tech, that's got to that's got to be discussed. And um, because we're dying to put the stuff on the roof, speculatively, if we could sell it um, at below market, but not at such a wholesale rate, it doesn't make sense. So we, we've got a big utility discussion to have as an industry where we're very willing generators of electricity going into this new wave of electrical vehicles. And, um, and it's the, the, the one of the solutions is staring us in the face. Um, that's where regulation gets out of whack. So special interests, of course, always have their hurdles, but um, we need to slay that dragon. Yeah, Brandy, I couldn't agree more. Uh, we've just converted both our vehicles to electric vehicles, so I'm um, probably a little bit more aware of these things than most people are. But yeah, I think you're uh, absolutely correct on this. Um, so to shift gears a little bit, um, um, you know, so you know, here we are in, like I said, in you know, first quarter of 2023. Um, what are, what are you guys, um, looking to do, you know, this year, next year, next few years, um, is, is there a pipeline? I'm sure there is, you know, how big is the pipeline and, you know, where, where does the company, um, like to be here in, you know, five years or so? Yeah. yeah so we've got a great pipeline, uh, that we've been working on for the last several years going through entitlement and have about, uh, two and a half, three million square feet of construction starts this year, uh, which we're excited about. We've got about 5 million feet in total uh, in our pipeline currently, as I said, going through entitlement and, and hopefully a portion of that breaking ground this year. Um, it, all in the Southern California basin, uh, we are continuing to grow that. I mean, we're, we're working actively with brokers on uh, just opportunities, unique opportunities in the Southern California and market. And uh, we've got a great partner and um, just by way of, you know, structure and opportunity to keep growing and expanding 
uh, Berkshire as a business. One thing that kind of focusing on, and Brandy and I had talked about this, is we'll call it Berkshire 4 and 5.0 here, being the fourth and fifth generation, is uh, just one component looking back that we had never done before or silo of our business was asset management and really holding on to the assets long-term and having long-term ownership. So that is uh, certainly a goal and a, a silo or a pillar of our business that we are focused on for growth and um, have you know great segue with with the portfolio we have on hand now for uh, that that opportunity and continued growth by way of uh, asset management contracts of our personal or hopefully third party you know portfolios as we grow. Yeah, and and really we're we're um, uh, we're, we're really build a core. Uh, these projects are not only difficult to find, they're difficult to entitle. Um, and so we, it, it's, um, we, we are not a merchant builder and um, we are looking only to affiliate with capital that will allow us to hold them very long term and have commitments to manage and, and asset manage those assets for the partnership because we think we're, we're good at it. And um, uh, so we will always be biased to select partners that will allow us to be very long term asset managers and control the fate of the real estate when they want to sell. Every investor does have a time when they will sell. We want the ability to replace them at market with a new owner of the real estate that will allow us to continue to manage that asset. That's the model um, we uh, are, are under. And so um, that's kind of the future look, if you will. Yeah, yeah, we're, um, it, you know, it's, it was, Cool that we've got, as I shared with you earlier in our career, and also uh, with Brandy's too, working with the railroad and Mitsui and um, you know other companies like even having partners like State Farm in the past and our, our partnership with Goodman Group out of Australia. You know, we've learned a lot along the way and you know, institutional best practices um, and, and really uh, being kind of best in class. And so we just, we, we feel it's such a great opportunity to kind of go back to the core of the family business and be able to manage and be nimble and entrepreneurial in what we do on our day-to-day, but have those best practices that we've learned over, you know, Brandy's almost 50-year career. I've been in the business now for 15 and just take those kind of lessons learned on the institutional side and, and really be the best in class, uh, you know, family business uh, that we can. So it's, it's yeah. a cool, um, just kind of, standing on both sides of, of how we, we can service our, our customers and our capital um, in, in having kind of the institutional hat, but also nimble and entrepreneurial that, that <clears throat> not many, I, I would say, competitive or peer groups could offer in that same same light. Right. Yeah. And just to quickly follow up on, on this uh, line of conversation, but over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of um, investors that have announced, you know, funds into the industrial space, whether it's pension funds, institutional folks, you know, folks that are, you know, really big, right? Um, is that good for the industry? Um, you, you've mentioned partners, so I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you're working with some of them. Um, but I am curious, you know, does does that help things along, or or does it sort of muck things up with sort of too many people trying to kind of get into, get into this business? Well, it mucks things up, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, too much of anything. I mean, too many developers building space and have over oversupply that mucks things up, and too much capital chasing any sector. We'll mess things up as well, but well, and I would say too, just by way of institutional knowledge of just what's right for the product and the, the best way to build best in class product. I mean, if you're just parachuting in as a you know prior you know thirty year retail or multifamily residential developer into industrial, there's a lot of nuances about our space that need to be learned and build true best in class. So it's. I think there's a differentiator there that, you know, Berkshire provides where just when there's this oversaturation, you know, even pushing entitlements through cities. I mean, there's a way of going about it and a process that that is learned and it's really nuanced to industrial. And I think if you just parachute in and it doesn't, as Brandy said, do anybody any favors, you know, on, on processing either. So it's managing that and, and kind of leveraging what we know and, and our history in, in the space. Now, let's talk about the money just one more thought. Um, so, you know, there's two kinds of capital, and, and there's a lot more, right? But there's there's generally two families of capital. There's the IRR-driven uh, fund, if you will, that is a closed end or a shorter term. And their goal is to 
amass uh, a, a number of assets and then sell the portfolio uh, to you know, rolling it up. There are one-offs that are, again, the shorter you hold it, the higher the IRR, the better the waterfall. Um, the aggregators of capital um, are the middlemen. Uh, like, like our tenants, they're trying to eliminate the middleman in the supply chain. The more people that touch the tennis shoes, the more expensive the tennis shoe gets. Um, the more people that touch the money, the more expensive the money gets. We're, we, we believe the healthiest return is for um, the capital to find a way to work direct with the um, originators of the real estate, which would be the developer, who on a long-term basis, if it's core capital focus, will hold that asset with that entity um, and, and maximize the, the, the multiple generational reletting of that asset. So you build it well, because you're going to hold it a long time. You're not going to flip it. You put the right kind of structure into the leasing. Um, you manage it well. You integrate into the community because you're not just building and leaving. Um, it has a whole different dynamic for everybody. But from the money standpoint, you've got the, the aggregators and the and, and which are important. But they're, those funds are, I'm going to take a wild guess, maybe 80% of the capital available in our space. The other are really the core um, capital that's long-term holding and they're direct, they're general accounts or they're sovereign capital. And that money is much more interesting to us because um, we're not forced, forcing the real estate to sell because the 10-year contract of that vintage of, of a fund um, says it's time to sell. It'd be a lousy time to sell if nine years ago you um, started your fund and you're wrapping it up last year, and now the fund says we need to we need to capture the valuation. Right. It has, it'd right. be a lousy time. So you get the point. So, but why force false timing driven by IRR on a building in a submarket that has all sorts of other dynamics? And so, you know, um, we tend to really like the capital that's the more uh, general account, direct, less middleman driven money, because it gives us the more affordable cost of capital um, that will then hold, you know, meet the other goal of asset managing longer term. So you kind of get the characteristic uh, of what, what we're looking for. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Um, as we close here, I, I like to, you know, ask a couple of, you know, personal questions in terms of, you know, um, either advice to your younger self or sort of advice to people trying to get into this industry, um, you know, something that you think would be useful um, to, you know, hear from, you know, someone who's been in this for uh, for a little while. Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess mine's maybe a little bit softer for just, you know, those who are kind of entrepreneurs or people, you know, the next generation of leaders coming in and the challenge that, you know, we deal with. Um, I, I would just say having a mindset of being content or having a mindset of fulfillment and, and where uh, being fulfilled and where you're at. Um, you know, we both Brady and I are believers. We have you know very strong faith. And um, I was at a, a, a sermon at church just, I don't know, two, two weeks ago, and they were kind of talking about this topic where there's just ways to define fulfillment in your life. And it's many people think it's a you know, a full bank account, a full thing, a thread of comments in your, you know, social media. That's that's what makes you full, right? And and I just think for me personally, you know, I, I look and lean very much to my faith in that way and and finding fulfillment there. But obviously my career, being with my family, working with my dad, you know, there's just a lot of to be grateful for in the moment and a lot of noise, you know, around us, especially right now economically speaking, you know, your intro, you know, recession, just, you know, it's doomsday all the time, every, every day. Um, so just, I, I would say for kind of this next gen of leadership, just really cutting out the noise, focusing out, focusing on being, you know, having just a mindset of being content and fulfilled. Well, and also discover, I think what you're also highlighting, Brooke, which is really a critical uh, aspect of, of living, which is your spirituality, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to, you know, all, all the other boxes we need to check um, in our life, you know, a good marriage or you know, a relationship or a, or a good job, a fulfilling job, but also yeah. a spiritually fulfilling experience. So I think that's really important. And we put a priority of that, as you can tell, in both of our lives. Yeah. 
Um, but I might speak to the uh, generations, and I don't know what we're calling this latest gen, but uh, there's a lot of alphabetical gens out there. Uh, but whatever one will be listening to this one, I think it applies regardless. It, it applied to mine. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a baby boomer before we used to call them gens. Um, so um, I'm sure the generation prior would tell me the same thing. In fact, I'm going to tell you something my grandfather told me. So to a baby boomer, the previous gen said the following to me. He said, um, you're not worth a damn until you're 40. And you know what? The older I got, the more the closer I got to 40, the more I realized what he was actually telling me because it speaks to acknowledging that you don't know what you don't know. And this is the most frustrating part about hiring and interviewing the young generations now. They all think because they went to whatever school, they're ready and rocking and they're ready to roll. No, take it slow, suck it up, learn a business. You learn how to think, you learn how to analyze. You didn't learn the sector, you didn't learn the business. So back it down, learn the biz, be mentored, and you're not doing the damn till you're 40. Buried in that also, though, is and a slogan here is really an overlay of humility, which can uh, easily become forgotten attribute of, of an individual as we enter uh, a new generation of business management. You know, we just need to be humble. And it's not humble to think that you're gonna be the boss in five years. Um, great attribute, check the box, be aggressive, be a type A, climb your ladder, but not at the expense of others and with sacrificing values and um, remembering that humility. I'll tell you what, when, when somebody comes in with a really, uh, um, I wanna be cautious with this because this is a terrible generalization, but if, you're, if you are overly educated and are really proud of that, it's probable that you have a very high IQ. But what is more important in this industry or in any industry, probably other than the sciences, would be a, a higher EQ than IQ. And so we hire EQ, not IQ. And it's very hard to interview that, but we've found ways, I think companies like Southwest Airlines and others have done a sensational job in, in interviewing EQ, training high EQ, and having as a result a, a sensational work environment for coworkers, but a wonderful place in a very productive, um, profitable business and happy customers. So um, I would just end it saying that, you know, be careful uh, how you set your goals and be humble. And That's amazing advice. Thank you both. Uh, this was really, really great. Um, stay well, have a happy new year. And I look forward to, you know, hearing how the business, uh, you know, progresses over the, over the years. Um, and uh, be healthy and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You Thanks. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.